Welcome to Engineering Integrity. From concept to construction, from restoration to maintenance and beyond, get behind the scenes insights from structural engineering experts. If you're an architect, a builder, a property manager, or just someone who wants to know what's up with buildings, this is for you. Hosted by Karen's Engineering. So welcome to the first podcast of Engineering Integrity, hosted by Karen's Engineering. This is the place where you can get an inside look hearing directly from experts in the field of architecture and structural engineering into the processes and issues involved in designing complex and challenging architecture projects, as well as maintaining structures for longevity and safety. So today's topic on the level Engineering Business Integrity is a very special chat with David Cairns, President and CEO of Cairns Engineering. We're going to be talking a bit about building a foundation for business on the principles of fairness, trust, and mutual benefit. So if you like what you hear, remember to rate, subscribe, and share this episode. And if you don't, well, tune in again next time. Maybe you'll like the next one. My name is Brian Carlock, your host for our conversation today, and I'm not an architect, I'm not a structural engineer, and I'm not a property manager, but I do want to know what's up with buildings. And today, I want to know what's up with you, David. Hi, Brian. It's a beautiful day here in Sarasota, Florida. Excellent, excellent. So listen, before we get into our topic today, let's let's add some context. You and I have known each other for, what, two or three years now? Yeah, we, uh, we decided we needed to have a little bit of an update of our brand image and um, our logo, et cetera. And we wanted to look at our overall marketing and, and public image for the firm. And so we went through a little process where we were looking for a new vendor. Um, and we spoke to several companies about what they could do for us. And we selected BCC Studio to start out a relationship on looking at what our brand was and and, and consequently logo and uh, get some ideas on how we could move forward. And um, that went really well. And we really liked the work product that you provided for us. And so I invited you or you invited me, I can't remember, to go have a, a drink together. And we found that we both like good bourbon. So <laughs> <laughs> we talked about uh, what could be next. I remember that conversation sitting at the bar. I think where you were at State Street. Uh, not the only bourbons that we shared together, by the way. Um, and uh, I think we had a couple of bourbons and I pulled out a napkin and I remember drawing some doodles and saying, here's what we want to do together. And you were like, okay. One of the things that always impressed me about you from our very first conversations was that you are an engineer by trade. You, you went to school for engineering and your background is, is, is more in that side of things, right? Correct. So that to me, in my orientation, is a lot of math, a lot of calculation, a lot of like, you know, pretty heady, you know, smart guy type of stuff. You can say nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I've always found fascinating in our conversations is that you had that side of it down pat. But you also understood, like the issues that you were just mentioning, the fact that, you know, relationships and the brand and building an internal team and all of these things that I'll call more soft things that typically, you know, um, you know, the, the left brain analytical has no aptitude for, but that you completely got it and it made sense to you. Um, so I just I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that, like how I mean, you switch back and forth or is it natural or did you did you study or read or, or what is it that led you to that place where you are really adept at both sides of the brain and both those both you know very analytical and and also very sort of what i'll call again the soft um disciplines yeah well i think i've always been a a social person i had a bunch of really great friends growing up and you know it's just kind of the way i am and and my uh, my mom is is very um, arts oriented and and interpersonal relationships social type stuff, and my dad is very analytical and scientific. Um, so as uh, as I went through school, um, I, I did pretty well in math and science, and and uh, well 
probably get more into it a little bit later, but I, I started out early on working around construction and decided a pretty straight track towards becoming an engineer. But at the same time, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to build a business in addition to just running numbers on a, you know, a beam or something like that. So um, it's kind of in my DNA. So you, you kind of are the product of the collision of the genes of your mother and your father. Right. Well, and, you know, I think the whole nature nurture discussion is, is one that could take up a whole podcast. But, I, you know, I think the involvement of, of my friends growing up and uh, the rest of my family and, you know, watching people attempt various different ways of life kind of led me in that direction. So I would say, yeah, it's definitely some genetic uh, proclivity. But at the end of the day, I can't deny the impact of my peers and, and you know, my family, et cetera. So. so so I find it interesting that you talk about early on, you knew that you wanted to have your own business and be an entrepreneur that way. And and it reminds me of when I was in college and you know reading books about, you know, heroes in my profession and thinking, you know, one day I want to have my own firm. And it was always something that frankly terrified me because there were, I knew there were skill sets that I had and the big skill sets that at the time I was missing that, you know, would, would be necessary for me to um, be successful in running my own business. Was there a point that when you think back where you're like, you know what, either I'm just going to make the leap or I know I've got what it takes. Like what helped you make that? Was that just something that you recognized and prepared for? And you just, when the time came, you were ready or, or, or how did that work for you? That progression from studying, um, you know, the discipline of what you were doing and then eventually saying, all right, I'm now ready and I'm going to do this as running my own business. It was mostly circumstance. Uh, my original plan was to come out of college and work for a, a big national company or a bigger company uh, for a while and then come back and take over my father's business, which was actually a construction company. Um, and as fate would have it, there was a really bad recession in Florida while I was finishing up my degree and um, the business was no longer there for me to come and take over. So I had kind of a reset and was following the path of, of uh, coming up in a firm, a regional firm, when a, a former engineer in that firm who had struck out on his own with some partners came to me and said, hey, I'm looking for a partner because my existing partners, two of them that were, he was with at the time, were retiring. And I was just freshly licensed, still in my 20s and, you know, full of him and vigor. And I said, sure, what the heck? Let's do it. Circumstance so often moves us in directions that either when we're not exactly ready for them or we had never considered before. Um, and it's, it's funny just the way that life works that way. Yeah. I mean, I had always knew that I wanted to have my own show, but uh, it, it was definitely way ahead of the schedule that I thought it was going to be on. <laughs> Which, by the way, turns out to be actually necessary for success because it takes a long time to build a business from scratch. So you've really been involved in architecture, buildings, structural engineering, you know, right from the get go since you gra I graduated. How long when you started this venture with your, your partner, as you described, how long before you really then got to a place where you're like, OK, I've got some kind of foundation under me and I can see that I now have I'm not trying to establish a business. I have a business and now it's just a matter of growing it. How, how long in, until you felt like, yeah, I'm in that place? Well, you got to go back earlier than that, because. My, my dad, like I said, owned a construction company mm -hmm. and did a lot of interesting projects and gave me the opportunity to um, learn about construction starting at really as soon as I could push a broom and taught me about the hierarchy of, of the construction industry um, and who does what. And, you know, my dad was an engineer by education, but... Uh, his own set of circumstances led him to be a general contractor. So, um, you know, his perspective was really interesting back then. Um, but anyway, you know, being in a family business environment where as a, as a kid, I was given, you know, starting with pushing a broom, but ultimately running projects and making sure that guys who were twice my age and twice my size, um, 
would be on the job on time and do what they were supposed to do and pass inspections <laughs> and all that stuff. I mean, I had to learn how to manage people and get someone who may not want to listen to me or think I'm some punk to, uh, to, to do it right. And, um, that was really invaluable experience. So, um, you know, that was in the early eighties. Mm. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a while, but fast forward to when I knew I was ready to, to, to start Karen's engineering group. Um, I had been a manager in a regional firm, actually two rounds of that. When I first got out of college, I moved to South Florida and, um, a really interesting company I worked with there. And, and the, my boss there believed in me and let me move up pretty quickly. So I had a sort of a junior executive role before, you know, I had my license, which is pretty unusual. Um, and then I worked for a bigger firm when I moved to Sarasota and ran a department. And so, you know, I got, I got really deeply exposed to how do engineering consulting businesses work? Mm. Yeah. Not just how do you make it stand? Yeah. The actual practice of it. What's a PNL, yeah. you know, what do, what's important on the balance sheet, that kind of thing. So by the time the partnership I had didn't work the way either of us wanted it to work, I, I already had a book of business. I had, I was running my own, um, basically mini company inside this other company. And so it wasn't that tough of a transition, to be honest. That's happened a lot in my life. And I'm really thankful that, you know, if I just shut my mind and my eyes a little bit for a minute, the right thing usually presents itself. And if I'm, if I'm aware enough to, to get it, then I can take action on it. Yeah, if you're not always pushing a, a pre uh, pre set agenda, you have a sense of where you want to go, and you know, and then y- you know you're able to to see possibilities rather than always pushing one note all the time. Right. I mean, you have to have an ego to own a, a business and to you know have a staff of you know in the, in the 60s of people now. But even if you just have a staff of three there has to be some ego involved and you have to be driven and you have to pick a path and follow the path. But I'm saying to be successful every once in a while, you have to hit pause Mm. and and listen, you know, Mm -hmm. which by the way, I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute that the, the process that you presented on our, on our sort of internal vision building really resonated with me because you did exactly what I'm talking about without me even having this conversation and prompting you to do it. So, you, you know, your philosophy was very similar in terms of listening to what everything that's around you is trying to tell you. <laughs> that's, that's really an important belief that I think we both share. And just for everyone who's listening, you know, what David's talking about is a program uh, that we've collaborated on. And I, and I truly mean that collaborated on uh, called Karen's way. And it's basically getting into the company um, and seeing how they do things, how they operate, what they're, and then getting into the client side, what the clients really want, and then being open to say, "Look, let's let's look at what's working, let's w- look at what's not working, and let's talk about what future state we want to have in all aspects of both our discipline." And you pointed this out earlier, David. There's a difference between the discipline of what you do as a structural engineer. And then the discipline of what you do as an entrepreneur and manager and leader of a company. And so looking at all those aspects and saying, how can we be better stewards over what our clients need and making sure that we're meeting their needs and having the sort of giving them the success that they're looking for in their relationship with us. Right. Yeah. And we did it when it came to the, uh, the, the branding of the company as well. I mean, I mean, we went on a kind of a listening tour. I shouldn't say we, you went on a listening tour. <laughs> Um, which I mean, there's a cliche to listening to her, but anyway, it, it gives you the right, uh, the right visual, um, you know, and talk to our clients and talk to our employees. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important because the result is really great. And likewise, over the course of the history of the company, every time I stop and listen for a minute, I, f- I, I recognize something that I'd been missing. Mm, mm. It reminds me of a, there's a Stephen Covey quote that says something about, you know, you you have to make sure you're not so busy sawing that you forget to sharpen the saw. Yeah. And I think part of that is observation and learning. He's got a lot of good stuff. I mean, begin with the end in mind. Yep. 
the the win win seek win win yeah i was actually just uh, talking with a friend of mine today about the three pillar books for me that really and started i think in in college and and stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people right. uh if listening out there if you haven't read it get it read it yeah. the other one is man's search for meaning by victor frankl who's a holocaust survivor which has a lot of parallels to um, some of the philosophies, I think, of, of, of Buddhism and cognitive therapy. And one of the key tenets there is, you know, he's like, the, the one freedom that can never be taken away from you is how you respond to what happens in the world. And I think this mirrors some of the conversation that you and I have had, which is holding true. And that's really kind of the core of what we're going to be talking about today is, look, People are going to hack, they're going to act, things are going to happen, but it's how you decide to hold true to your values and move forward through that. Yeah, the other Covey one is um, seek first to understand and then to yes. be understood. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. I know for me, another seminal one was the whole concept of you're okay, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, which was, I'm going to say that that was like a very like 70s, 80s, um, you know, pop, pop culture philosophy. And I think that I opened up when I opened up the studio and the business, I kind of went into it that way. It's like, I'm going to be fair. You're going to be fair. And uh, wow, the first few years I learned that that was not always the case. Yeah. How many projects do you think you handle a year? Well, I was thinking about that the other day and it's, and, and I don't really measure that specifically. Mm. I measure the number of opportunities we have and our hit rate and a kind of an average duration of project. And so I can pretty easily calculate that we're working on six to 800 projects a year, but I don't track that as a KPI, you know, mm. maybe I should, but um, with that many people and that many projects going on, I find it's more important to focus on the process of how we successfully complete the projects and make sure that those internal leaders who are managing projects are doing it in accordance with our company values and um, our customer experience is good. And, mm. you know, we, we, we do it in a profitable way. As long as we've defined a process that we know to be successful and we've taught everybody in the company what those processes are and, and, and how to keep track of whether or not we're following them, then the results will inevitably turn out good. However, the nice thing about being a company the size we are is that the inevitable problem project isn't going to torpedo the company. We have enough resources to be able to try and maintain a happy customer when we make a mistake or, or some circumstances just put themselves in line and, and keep us from being financially successful on a project. So the big engineering firms in the country are, are tens of thousands of people. We're not like that. We're still a very personal experience, you know, family owned business and small enough that anybody that's a customer can pick up the phone and call me and I probably recognize them and who's their project manager and what's going on in their job. But we're big enough to be able to bring some resources to the table that result in a better experience. Not to mention, we have all these great projects going through the company and teaching us how to get better each year. And, you know, our collective experience and skill set is enhanced by every project we do. So, you know, doing five a year versus doing 800 a year, I mean, you're obviously going to learn a lot more and get a lot better. One of the things I, I really harp on on my managers is that, you know, the best way to manage a, a, a book a business or a portion of the company is to make sure that you visualize your business operation as a three-legged stool. So three-legged stools are interesting because you can't lose any of the legs without it falling down. You know, so if you focus on three main pillars and they're given adequate weight, then your stool will be stable and strong and, and stand. So for our engineering business, one of, one of the legs is, is, technical proficiency. How well do we do our job? So do we know how to, to do the assignment we're taking on? If we don't know it yet, or we know close to it, then what do we need to do to learn? Second uh, leg of the stool is customer service. If we don't have happy customers, we're not going to have repeat customers, and we're not going to be able to sustain the business. Um, the last leg of the stool is business acumen. So our, our managers need to spend that time reviewing what is the 
profitability of the job. How well are we doing the business? You know, are we taking care of our employees too? Um, you know, do we have a sustainable financial picture for our, you know, area of responsibility? So, um, taking all of the complexities out of running a business unit in the company and, and refining it down to those simple tenants lets our managers allocate their time in a way that gives enough focus to each of those things. And we, of course, with the, the, the types of people that we have in the company, sometimes engineers need to be supported by non-engineers for the customer mm -hmm. relationship aspect of it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's definitely presented challenges over the years. You know, we've been in business 21 years. And so you can imagine, um, let's say on average, we had 500 a year because it didn't always have 800 a year. You know, that's a lot of projects. Inevitably, some of them are, are going to have unhappy customers or the, or the personalities just don't mesh or whatever. So so we try to we try to interject resources that that really help the customer have a good experience all the time. And and having those three tenants that are what I would call sort of, you know, philosophical rules of thumb, you know, that anybody at any level of the company can go, am I paying attention to these three things is sometimes so much more helpful than having like, you know, pages and pages of SOP. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, paralysis by analysis is real. <laughs> so let's talk for a second about you, you talked about, look, you're handling so many, you know, 21 years, five to 800 projects a year. <clears throat> Just top of mind, what's the most challenging project that you guys have pulled off that you're proud of? Well, in terms of complexity, we've had some really interesting projects. Um, the one I'm most proud of is a little bit of a patriotic thing for me, um, and it's actually called Patriot Plaza at the Sarasota National Cemetery, and it's a it's an amphitheater um, that. Uh, a really great nonprofit here in Sarasota decided to set up to give um, mostly veterans a venue to, to gather and have ceremonies and things like that. But it's in the middle of the National Cemetery here, which is a very somber place. And it's a giant glass canopy that's supported by a very challenging uh, foundation and column and wall kind of arrangement that when you go and look at it, you'd have no idea how difficult it was to make it work. But um, fortunately, uh, one of our senior engineers is a fellow of the American Concrete Institute and really, really understands how reinforced concrete works and was able to push the envelope to achieve the architect's vision and configuration um, and some of the superstructure components, which were from a, um, from a specialty manufacturer. They really they couldn't make it easy for us by just by the nature of the, of the materials. And so we had to really push the envelope. So I'm really proud of that one. And every time, you know, there's a politician or there's a, there's a big ceremony there, you know, it makes my heart swell. So I, I, yeah. I really like that one. We've had some other really cool stuff over the years. Like um, when the, when the big housing bubble happened and the traditional construction material prices really rose up kind of, similar to what's happening now, there were a lot of innovative construction methods and materials that were being pushed onto the market. And, the, and these guys would come into our office and say, I've got the greatest thing ever. We're going to be your biggest client in two years. This is the most amazing thing. Like one of them was building houses out of foam, like styrofoam, in the same kind of way that um, out west they do adobe structures, you know, where they have the bales of hay with the, uh, with the mortar on them using um, styrofoam. And uh, we actually figured out how to do it. And there's a couple of them built here. Um, all kinds of modular solutions that, unfortunately, the collapse of that housing bubble back then killed off just about all of those companies because, mm. you know, they were on a shoestring and didn't have enough traction to be able to survive. But um, when, the, when the cost of traditional materials comes back down to a, to a reasonable level, no, no buyer like architect or contractor developer wants to do something unusual outside the envelope because it puts them at risk. Right. What, so. What's, what's interesting about the two things that you're talking about though is, and I've seen, and I've, I've been out to that structure that you're talking about Patriot Plaza. It's amazing structure. To me, that typifies what you guys are about, which is the architect designed something beautiful and 
they kind of leave it to you. Okay, figure out how to make it not fall down. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I'm oversimplifying that, but but I think there's an inherent understanding that you guys have in terms of we are here to achieve beauty through the structural discipline that we engage in. Yeah. There's a funny story. My first job out of college in South Florida, my boss threw a project on my desk that is actually very similar. And it's much, much smaller in scale, but it's still out there today. It's called Gossman Amphitheater. It was a kind of a band shell type thing. And, and we were doing the foundations and the stage and the supporting surrounding st structures. I, at the time, was really trying to learn as much as I could about how the wind works. And um, this was right after Hurricane Andrew in South Florida and the new F South Florida building code was coming into effect. You know, fast forward 20 plus years later, and the, the group of folks that I knew that introduced us to that project at Patriot Plaza came to me and I was like, oh, I've done this before. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, it reminds me of what you're talking about earlier is lessons that you learn, right? They stack on top of each other and whether it's how to deal with the big burly construction guys on the job, even though you're, you know, maybe the youngling to, you know, hey, I did something similar to this. Let me build on top of that. And, and you know, it's, it's building on top of those past experiences and always getting better. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is when you're leading people, whether it's your own employees or it's a contractor or it's a, it's a laborer on a construction site, it's really effective to throw down a challenge, you know, like, mm. like just, just people want to be recognized for doing their best work and they want their best work to be good. Mm. So if something is not good and you go out and you look at it or internally you go to somebody's desk, you look at what they're doing, you know, you just ask them a question. Is that your best work? There's a whole other episode about uh, managing people to get their best work in a way that motivates and inspires them versus the opposite that we we can get into right there. I'm so tempted to go down that path because it's it's really a focus of, you know, my my practice every single day. But I think maybe we should come back to that one. That's it's, right. a, it's just a fascinating, fascinating topic for me. Um, so we'll have to put that on the books. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned that I know that you're personally and professionally very interested in and, and, and as a company you guys look into is just unique, innovative ways to accomplish things that are both, you know, structurally sound, economical and, you know, environmental, et cetera. But, you know, you mentioned that with some of the things that had, had happened, you know, right before the, 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 the burst of the bubble. But I know that that's something also that you, you guys are getting into, um, you know, on a regular basis as well. I don't think that you can find new pathways to success if you're not always trying to innovate. Mm. There's this thing called the innovation curve where the value of a product or service is inversely proportional to the availability, right? So mm. when it first hits the market, it's worth a lot. You remember the first flat screen TVs were like $20,000 for a 28-inch <laughs> one. And now you can buy a 75-inch TV for less than $1,000. So if you're not looking for the next flat screen TV, you're never going to find it. I think there's a lot of similarities actually between, I'll say your business and my business, right? So, you know, while our disciplines, our core offerings are very, very different, right? Our business, and by that, I mean that we both provide expertise to clients, right? Expertise about structural design, expertise about materials, expertise about, you know, how to build things, you know, appropriately. Um, on both a project and an ongoing relationship basis, you know, we're, we're providing that expertise. So I'm going to lump us both for a moment into the category of professional services. So for me, it's advising clients in branding, marketing, advertising, et cetera. And for you, it's, you know, ensuring that an architect's vision can be built in a structurally sound manner or that an existing property is kept maintained and sound. So is, is that a fair sort of top level comparison in terms of like professional services is really what you're about? And the core of that is delivering that that uh, discipline expertise? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that that's the product that we offer. The product is a service and the service is our knowledge about buildings. So uh, in terms of, of comparing uh, professional service businesses versus like a manufacturer or, or somebody that's selling some, you know, physical product, it's, it's, it's a different mindset mm -hmm. because it's very, it's very, interpersonal you know you're dealing directly with clients you have to like whatever it is that your service offering is but you know you also have to like helping people and working with all the various different types of people there are out in the world you know sometimes you have to have a thick skin and <laughs> sometimes they shower you with praise and you know it's it, you, it's like Forrest Gump says you never know what you're going to get <laughs> but it's fun you know and and 
it makes life interesting. Well, that that connects to another thing that I wanted to to bring up too. And, and one of the things that struck me from the very beginning was your focus on doing the right thing, and how your behavior demonstrated to me a focus on fairness, trust, and mutual benefit. And there's actually a quote that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I think you and I were sitting in a conference room, and there was a contract in front of us, and you looked at me and you said, "You know, if my word is good, I shouldn't have to sign this." nervous, anxious pause. <laughs> but then again, if my word is good, I should have no problem signing this. And then you got the pen out. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, it is definitely a core philosophy of mine is that, you know, integrity is, is doing the right thing when, when nobody's watching, mm -hmm. even when you don't necessarily have to, I'm never going to default on a loan and I'm never going to ghost somebody who I owe something to. I mean, that's just not in my nature. Well, I, I think for me, I remembered that and it resonated with me so much when you said that because, you know, I went into business somewhat naively thinking that, you know, I'm always going to try to do what's right for others and serve them and thinking that, you know, everybody's always going to do the right thing by me also, right? It's just the way people operate. So in the beginning, my contracts and agreements were very, very simple. And then over the years, I've learned that, oops, we didn't make this clear or that clear at the beginning about this particular issue or that particular issue. And, and, and I'll be honest, some things I'm like, oh my gosh, I never realized this would even be an issue. You know, you realize, wait a minute, everybody wasn't on the same page about that. So I started to realize from my experience why sometimes agreements become so layered and so specific. Was it because that clarity needed to happen that, you know, that clarity of expectations so that everybody could be on the same page and, and be happy, you know, getting what they wanted to get. Right. And you also need to recognize that not everyone has the same set of morals and values. Hmm. And you have an obligation to yourself and to your family and to your employees to be prepared in the event that that might happen. You want to be prepared to not be so nice. It's not why we're in business. We certainly don't want to take advantage of anyone. But at the same time, we don't want to be taken advantage of because mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, good riding on people doing what they're committing to do. Like in, in the simplest terms, if we enter an agreement to provide a service for a fee, we provide the service and don't get the fee, then not only is the company's profitability going to be hurt, but also the the families that may not be paid. And if those families aren't paid, then they don't have money to go buy groceries. And so the grocery store is affected and you know the neighborhood charities are affected and the kids who are growing up and going through sports. So there's this cascading effect. That's such a holistic uh, almost community-based view of it. And, and you know, I'm not going to veer off into a political discussion, but oh my God, if, if only, you know, our society could operate that way and realize that it's not just all about me getting out to get everything that I can get, but to how it impacts the environment and other people around me. Well, yeah, but I, I'm definitely a capitalist. I believe it's very possible and realistic and uh, actually the right way to be a successful capitalist by doing things the right way. And, um, you know, I, I've seen people take it too far uh, on the side of morality where they, you know, went down with the ship. But, mm. um, you know, there was a, there's a developer in town at the last housing bubble collapse that wasn't going to be able to finish the project that was started, came to me personally and some other folks that were involved. It was a big project. And they were not yet in arrears, but getting close to being in arrears. And it was a big fee. It was like a $100,000 fee. And he came to me and he said, look, I'm just not going to be able to do it. And can we, can we work something out? Like, can we figure out how to get to the other side of this? And we'll, we'll both live to fight another day. Mm. And so we negotiated a settlement on the fee. Now, there were 20 or 30 or more other clients who just disappeared and Just refused walked. to talk to us. So being a structural engineer, there's some huge factors at play, right? If you want to talk about integrity and the consequences, and you told this story a little bit in terms of the, the ripple effects of, of, you know, economic impact, but basically you're, I'm going to simplify this. Basically you're ensuring the buildings don't fall down on people while they're in them. There's some huge factors at play in terms of what you guys are actually doing, the discipline of what you do. Yeah. So that's normal to me. It doesn't seem huge. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it's that's such a, I mean, literally and figuratively, that's such a weight to carry. Mistakes have so much more consequence. True. 
it's something that uh, you you get used to the risk because you know that it's there. And we've been fortunate enough not to have any mistakes result in people dying, though we've made plenty of mistakes. I mean, as a firm, we've made plenty of mistakes. Everybody does. We're humans. And, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, you have to forgive yourself. You have to ask forgiveness from the people that you hurt and you move on. You learn from it and you do it better next time. You know, I think successful entrepreneurs generally have short memories for bad things. Mm. One of our uh, more senior leaders in the company, probably 35 years ago, when was the Atlanta Olympics in the mid 90s? Yeah, I uh, was involved in a, in a situation where a um, a light tower collapsed during construction. I don't know if you remember that, but it was in the news mm. back then. And um, he helped his company navigate through all of those, you know, difficult sort of investigations and understanding what happened, what went wrong, how can we avoid it in the future stuff. You know, when I first met him, which was probably 19, 1996-ish, or 7, 97, right after that, I, I asked him what it was like to go through that. And, you know, so I got some some vicarious lessons on how to deal with tough stuff. And then another situation that happens quite a bit is that we do forensic type engineering, which means that if there is a legal claim, we get brought in as an expert to help figure out what happened and why. And if there's some fault, who might be at fault more than I'd like, it involves somebody getting hurt or killed. You know, you get, you get to, you get to experience it and you get to kind of know what to look out for and how to try and mitigate the chances of that happening with your own internal practice. So, you know, we had one situation down in South Florida where a, a big old shopping center, like like a regional distribution facility for Best Buy, I believe it was. One of the connections between a major horizontal component and a major column in the middle of the building broke while they were, it had a concrete roof on it and they were pouring the concrete and there was 20 workers up there and this little connection was under design and it broke during construction. And two guys fell, one guy was paralyzed. There were several other injuries too. We weren't the, we weren't the designers of the building, but we were called in to, to investigate and see what happened. And then once we figured out what happened to evaluate the rest of the building that hadn't collapsed to see if it needed any remediate remedial work. So it was a pretty substantial assignment. But but my point is getting exposure to that helps you understand it and helps you yeah. become comfortable is the wrong word, but but you know, able to deal with it. Familiar, familiar. Yeah, I, you know, it's so like a like an ambulance driver, right? They say people ripped up every day. Eventually they're more focused on trying to help the people have the best outcome they have and less focused on the fact that the guy's ripped up and right next to him, you know, it's almost like you're able to, as you said, you're, you're able to vicariously learn from, you know, other people's mistakes and what the results of those are. I, I think that's, you know, for me, that's a way that I've pretty much learned my entire life is not so much book learning and all the things like that. Although, you know, we mentioned some books that, you know, we both learned a lot from, but seeing other people do things, both doing things right and doing things wrong and modeling or consciously not modeling after those things. Yeah. Having a diversity of experience is important too. It's, it, it's, it's good for me. And I think it's good for everyone to have a diversity of experience. And the more you can dig in, the more you can learn. So I want to dig in for a second on some potential sticky parts of this conversation about business and integrity. So in terms of being a professional services firm, and in your case, dealing with large budgets, and as we were just talking about critical issues that involve huge liabilities and life and limb, and, and then balancing, as you were talking about before, balancing the interests of your firm and your clients and the project partners. Again, you know, maybe there's a rule of thumb answer here. I don't know. But how do you navigate all those issues and maintain integrity for the project result, for the relationships involved, and for the health of your firm? Well, it comes back to the three-legged stool. I mean, you have to make a calculus of each of these competing priorities and, you know, ultimately decide what is the best combined outcome. The way we do that is we keep in mind what's our values. Hmm. You know, we had strong values um, from the inception of the company. We, we spent a lot of time and effort developing those values. We had seven sort of pillars of the company that we simplified going through our exercises with Studio BCC to really focus on integrity. But at the end of the day, when we're making those decisions, we, we look at how do the decisions we make fit into our value structure. Mm. Just real quickly, our seven values 
are excellence, innovation, integrity, joy, respect, social profit, and teamwork. If we can draw a little chart on a really tough decision, put a box for each of the seven values and rate it from one to five, how does this decision fit within our value structure? We can answer our own question somewhat objectively. We may get to the same place, but I, I want to talk about another sticky issue here. So there's all these parties and considerations to balance interest issues and, and definitely personalities. And as you said, you know, in any business, you know, egos. So how do you achieve fairness and serve the interests of the projects and to put it bluntly, protect your firm, as we were talking about before, so you can continue to keep doing business when you're faced with unreasonable demands? How do you still maintain integrity and achieve uh, fairness when the other side is being unreasonable. Well, you start out by learning how to say no, mm. which actually took me a long time to learn. You know, as a professional service provider with high aspirations, and as we were talking about earlier, the belief that everybody's going to be pleasantly surprised by our work and trustworthy, etc. When the demands start to become unreasonable, you say no, and and hopefully you recognize that before you sign the agreement. <laughs> so, how long did it take you to learn to say no? Well, I mean, I'm constantly learning more about how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> the methods by which to say no. But but until you no. felt like, oh, you know what? I'm at a point where I I can walk in and if I have to say no, I'm I'm good with that. How how long did that take you? Uh, it took it didn't take that long. A couple years maybe. Mm. Okay. Because, you know, you get into a situation where you have an unreasonable person either inside the company or a customer, it hurts and it's stressful. You have your internal indicator on when, when is it too much? When is it not worth it anymore? Mm. You know, when do you reach a point where there's nothing that you're going to do to satisfy that unreasonable employee or that unhappy customer? You know, some people thrive on chaos and, and turmoil. And they're not trying to hurt you, but they don't realize that what they're doing is hurting you. You stand up and you say, no, that's not okay with me. Mm. As a matter of fact, this happened very recently on a conference call with an unhappy customer when my team was trying to be accommodating and, and, and explain the situation from their perspective and, and validating the customer's perspective. And yet this individual was still being very abrasive. And so we had to step up and say, no, that's not acceptable. Let's make sure that we remember what each of our roles here are in this relationship and what we're bringing to the table for you. If you're not happy and you want something different, that's fine. Mm. Just tell us what it is and we'll do our best to do it if it's reasonable and fair. But don't just be nasty because we're not going to put up with that. We'll just, yeah. we'll say no, we'll hang up the phone, we'll terminate the agreement, we'll, we'll offer you some help finding a replacement for us. But at the end of the day, if we don't respect each other, then let's recognize that. Let's be open and honest about it and find a way to, to see the other side. Sometimes that mesh just doesn't quite happen. Yeah, and, that, and that's okay. So you, so you were just talking about your team and how, you know, obviously they're on the front lines of dealing with those, those, those situations. So how do you make sure that everyone in your organization, from those who have decades, and I know you have people there, decades of experience and are used to doing things their own way, maybe not necessarily the Karen's way. And also those who are new and still finding their professional sea legs, how do you get every member of your team? And I think you have, you know, like we said in the sixties, uh, how do you get them all around these same values and growing? Because it's not just enough to say, here's an email with our values or, you know, look on our, you know, website and there's our values. How do you actually do that? Because just as you're talking about, look, it took some time to learn how to say no it takes time for those values to settle in with people and maybe supplant values that they've already been operating under. Yeah. We believe it's important to teach by example. We believe it's important to hold people accountable when they do things that are outside of our values. And we think it's, you know, it's critical to communicate. We try to have regular events that are not project focus. So, you know, team building or um, a party or, you know, we had a big event up in Orlando it was our last one just before the COVID hit. And um, it gives people a chance to be real with each other and break down those barriers that might make some kind of discord fester or become a problem. Um, 
but at the same time you have to recognize when someone doesn't fit you know we uh, we believe very strongly that that we provide a great place to work we have great projects we have great people but i don't want i don't want to take somebody that has a different value structure and force them to conform to ours you know mm-hmm. uh, and, and most of the time when those people when you identify those people and whether it's a friendly parting or if there's conflict involved uh, lots of times I've helped them transition into another another uh, position with another company and most of the time there's a huge sense of relief for everybody yeah yeah you know because if, if it's not working it's not working for anybody so really having having clearly defined values communicating them not letting things sit if things are not meeting standards making sure everybody has a you know there's there's also a cultural connection so it's not you know very draconian and then just you know recognizing that hey sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and i you know what i know of you you know also being patient People are going to make mistakes They're, you know, it's going to take some time. I'm personally a bit fascinated by the need that we have in our society to project this image and especially in business that we're infallible, that we know everything about everything and we're never going to be wrong about it. And I, and I think that's evolving a bit. Yeah. And I see younger professionals doing a better job of being, you know, quote, real humans, but it's so ingrained in our culture that it creates roadblocks to, I think, personal and professional growth. And it sets up business engagements with conflict as, you know, everybody comes into it as like, I have to be right. I'm the one that's right sort of attitude. Right. I, you know, I learned early on that you learn more by failing than you do by succeeding. So I think it's, uh, it's important to welcome failure. Again, fascinating topic for me. How do you maintain a high standard of performance, integrity, and service while still owning when you're wrong and when there are mistakes that have been made, you know, embracing mistakes while at the same time saying, look, we're not about mistakes. We're about, you know, a, a standard of performance, but mistakes happen and we're going to own them and be, you know, out with it. How, how do you approach that? Well, it's a, philo- a philosophical position. You know, if you, if you understand that, that you learn from mistakes, then you're very much inclined to recognize when they happen and to own them so that you can learn. Same as with the customer, you know, if you're open and honest with the customer that you make a mistake as a human being, typically they they are very supportive of you correcting the mistake, you know? And the alternative is to say, I'm not making any mistakes. When you are making mistakes, then the, the problem compounds, you know? And the customer is no longer willing to work with you to achieve a, pro- a, a good solution, a good outcome. It erodes a sense of reputation, trust, integrity, fairness, when you don't just own up to it. Correct. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, you know, if, if you're not pushing the envelope, it's, it's easier to avoid mistakes. You know, if you're doing things that are, that are really innovative and new, it it comes just by nature with mistakes. I was just actually talking to um, uh, my students the other day and they were saying like, how do you come up with ideas and how do you you know, push the envelope. And I was saying, well, you, you just keep pushing until something breaks until you've gone too far. And then you're going to learn something and you're going to know, you know, where the right moment is, you know, you have to push it past that point where, okay, this doesn't make sense anymore. So let's, let's bring it back a little bit. Yeah. And, And on top of that, you know, if, if, if you challenge every person in your organization to try their best to, to, to push the envelope on what they can accomplish or what the problem they're trying to solve might have as a solution, then you, then you expect to see some more mistakes. However, from a, from a corporate perspective, Mm -hmm. we try to put in place enough checks and balances that the mistakes that are made that make it outside the walls of the office aren't carrying with them dire consequences. You know, we're not going to let a first year student intern go and, design the lateral system on a 30 story building. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, we might let them play around with it, looking over the shoulder of a guy who's been doing it for 30 years, but you know, you have to be smart about it. You know, we're not, we're not saying, yeah, every job is going to be fraught with mistakes. No, no, no. We're saying, you know, do your best, take on tough assignments, collaborate with your team internally, and hopefully we catch them before they get outside. But if they get outside, then we, then we just, we communicate with a customer about it and say, this is what we were trying to accomplish. And this is what happened. And this is how we're going to resolve it. And like I said before, we've been fortunate that our checks and balances have worked to the extent that we haven't had anybody get hurt or killed on projects that we've engineered, either existing buildings or new construction type 
projects as any consequence of any design work that we did. So it, it seems to be working. 21 years. So mistakes internally are learning opportunities. Mistakes that go externally have some consequences. And if everybody understands that, and like you said, there are checks and balances, then then it's a way to say, look, it's an opportunity to learn and 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 let's embrace that. So David, I want to thank you for pulling back the curtain and giving us a personal look at what drives your approach to doing business with integrity. I, I really appreciate your candor and your transparency um, and sharing with us. Well, it's definitely my pleasure. And um, I, I really hope to get some feedback from the people who are listening to this. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a really great experience reflecting and pausing for a minute to look for something I might be missing. <laughs> well, thank you again. So that's it for our chat with David Cairns, president and CEO of Cairns Engineering. Thanks for listening. Hopefully there's something here that rang true or sparked a new thought or maybe even challenged your personal status quo. Come back next time and we'll be digging into more about the intersection of architecture and structural engineering design. Thanks for joining us on Engineering Integrity, hosted by Karen's Engineering. Subscribe to hear more inside conversation from industry experts. Follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Find all episodes and more on karens.com.